Hello, folks. Welcome to the first 2023 edition of First Thursday, the monthly podcast from the Labor Relations Information System. My name is Will Aitchison. I'll be your host for the next 45 minutes or an hour or so as we go through recent developments in the public safety labor world. And this month, uh, courts were cleaning out their dockets at the end of the year. I've got too many cases to talk about. But what I hope to get through in this podcast uh, is a very important case, I think, about religious freedom in the workplace, whether or not an employee can object to being photographed in uniform on the basis of religious beliefs. I'll talk about a staffing case where an employer violated a staffing provision in a firefighter collective bargaining agreement and was ordered to pay $1.6 million. I hope to talk about one of a seemingly never-ending series of cases on the question of whether uh, back pay can include overtime. I'll also bring you up to speed on Chicago's vaccination requirement and maybe some other cases if I've got time. But first, a personal announcement. I wanted to tell all of you that I'll be stepping back as executive director of LRIS. Uh, it's been really quite a ride. Uh, I founded LRIS in, believe it or not, uh, 1983. And over the last 39 years, uh, we have hosted hundreds of seminars that have been attended by tens of thousands of public safety professionals. I, I think I've written at least 6,000 newsletter articles and uh, almost 10 books and recorded hundreds of podcasts. But most of all, what I focus on when I look back at LRIS is that I've met and become friends with more individuals than I imagined possible. And I truly treasure those relationships. The idea behind LRIS was a simple one. I thought that public safety employees and employers and labor organizations needed accessible, affordable, and above all, neutrally presented information about the workplace rights of public safety employees. That sort of information just didn't seem to be out there 39 years ago. You'd see some seminars, but they'd be very much slanted to whatever the beliefs were of the organization hosting the seminar. There wasn't really any book out there that described the rights of police or firefighters or corrections officers in an easy-to-understand way. And I just thought that that sort of information needed to be out there. Uh, but uh, all things do change. And after 39 years, I am thrilled to announce that the Philadelphia labor law firm of Willig, Williams, and Davidson will be taking over LRIS in conjunction with my law partner, Anil Karia. Many of you have met Anil at our LRIS seminars. You also will have met Rick Polson, the Willig Williams partner, who's going to be taking the lead on all LRIS matters and who has spoken at LRIS for years. Our wonderful staff, Mark Fuller, who runs LRIS, Claire Cowan, who uh, you've seen at seminars, runs our seminar business, and Victoria Lavia, who does uh, 
all sorts of things, including, most importantly, uh, the work maintaining and setting up uh, the LRIS app. They will all remain with LRIS in Portland. Uh, Willard Williams is a great believer in the mission of LRIS. Uh, their intent is to build on the foundation that we have laid. And I, I just couldn't be happier that LRIS is going to continue and that the mission of LRIS is going to continue to be fulfilled. Uh, the transition is going to be a gradual one. I'll be speaking, for example, at our Public Safety Union Leadership Conference on January 25th uh, in Las Vegas, and I'll be speaking at several other LRIS seminars over the course of 2023 and 2024. For those of you who are crazy enough to enjoy listening to a lawyer talk about case law, I'm going to continue recording the podcast for this foreseeable future. Uh, on the other side of my professional life, my law practice, there'll be a similar gradual transi uh, transition. Uh, I will be giving up day-to-day -day representation of almost all labor organizations, uh, and some of that is going to be very, very difficult to do. Um, but it is time, as I've said. I'm going to move more into the role of uh, the experienced lawyer hanging around the office giving unsolicited advice to the firm's junior lawyers. Uh, to all of you who have followed LRIS, uh, I offer you a heartfelt thanks. Uh, I count myself as really, truly fortunate that all of you, everybody who's worked for LRIS, have made the vision of LRIS come alive and thrive and be able to move into the next generation. Okay, on to the cases. First of all, uh, that very interesting religious discrimination case that I was describing in the introduction to the podcast, you don't see too many of these, and uh, I don't think I have ever seen one with this fact pattern. Uh, this case involves Thomas Schwartz, who is a firefighter who worked for the Bourne Fire Department in Massachusetts. Uh, now, all members of the fire department had an ID card as well as something called an accountability tag, and both of those featured a picture of the firefighter. Uh, the photographs on the two, the ID cards and the accountability tags, uh, were inconsistent. Uh, so they, they might be the same photograph, they might be different photographs. Some firefighters wore t-shirts in their photographs while other wore ties. And in 2016, the fire chief decided we need consistency among the photographs in these cards. And he began the process of photographing the firefighters in their Class A uniforms. Uh, Firefighter Schwartz responded he didn't want to have his photograph taken because, his words, portrait photography for personal recognition went against his religious beliefs. Uh, eventually, the chief gave a direct order to all firefighters, to, including Schwartz, to have their photograph taken in their Class A uniforms. Uh, Schwartz refused and he was suspended for one shift. Schwartz, seeing the writing on the wall, or perhaps happy with retirement, 
then retired and sued the city, claiming that he had a First Amendment religious freedom right not to be photographed. And the case made it all the way up to the federal First Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, when you're thinking the First Circuit, think uh, the upper Northeast, Maine, down to Massachusetts. Those states are all collected in the First Circuit. And the court begins with what is now a generally accepted policy. Let me drop a footnote there that I'll come back to. But it's a generally accepted policy of the U.S. Supreme Court that uh, the right to free exercise of religion doesn't exempt somebody from complying with regulations, a law, a statute, or in this case, a rule of a fire department. A, a, it doesn't relieve someone of the obligation to comply with whatever that obligation is on the ground that the law requires or forbids conduct that the employee's religion uh, requires or forbids. So the way this is normally phrased is, do you have a neutral and generally applicable law or policy that only has an incidental burden on the right to free exercise of religion? And if you do, then uh, the court will apply what's called the rational basis test. And that means that uh, if there is any rational basis, any, uh, then the law will be upheld and the incidental uh, effect on religion will be overlooked by a court. Uh, this has been doctrine of the Supreme Court for decades now. It came out of a, a case in Oregon where the question dealt with uh, people who were being uh, not just people, Native Americans, who were being denied unemployment benefits because they were consuming peyote as part of their religious beliefs. And this is where this uh, law of general applicability rule uh, came into existence. So what does the court do with this particular case involving Schwartz? The court finds, first of all, that the photograph policy was in fact facially neutral. It was a rule of general applicability that didn't target anybody of any particular religion. And that meant, the court says, that Schwartz had to prove that the fire chief's actions were undertaken because of Schwartz's religious beliefs. And the court says, uh, there's just no proof of that. And I'm going to quote here. The chief did not show hostility towards Schwartz's religious beliefs, but instead asked further questions about it to determine if he could implement the policy without infringing on Schwartz's beliefs. When Schwartz clarified he could not have his photograph taken for promotional purposes, for example, to be sent to the media, the chief attempted to avoid infringing on Schwartz's religious beliefs by clarifying that the photographs would be used for identification and accountability purposes. So the court ends up finding that this is a rule of general applicability wasn't aimed just at Schwartz. That means the rational basis test applies. And as you've heard me say on this podcast many times, 
once an employer wins the argument that the rational basis test applies, the employer has won the case. And that's what happens here. The court says, yeah, uh, having consistent photographs uh, for identification purposes in a public safety agency, that's a rational basis. Uh, would we have chosen something else if we were running the fire department? Maybe, but that doesn't matter. It just has to be a rational basis, not the most rational requirement. And Schwartz uh, loses his lawsuit. I want to turn now to the minimum staffing case and uh, because this case is really an illustration that when an employer violates a minimum staffing clause in a collective bargaining agreement, it can get really expensive. This case involves the city of East Cleveland, Ohio, and local 500 of the International Association of Firefighters, and there's a staffing clause in the collective bargaining agreement that requires the city to have a minimum, and the phrasing is, quote, safety firefighting force of 10 on-duty firefighters. And the clause specifically says that if, quote, personnel are not available to meet the minimum staffing requirements, firefighters will be recalled on overtime to maintain the 10 minimum safety manning requirements. In April of 2016, the city is facing a pretty serious fiscal crisis. The fire chief issued a memorandum saying there's going to be layoffs consisting of 15 part-timers, and those layoffs will be effective on April 12, 2016. That will leave the daily staffing at 8, the chief announced. In response, the union filed a grievance. The grievance said, we got a minimum staffing clause that says 10. You can't do minimum staffing with eight. Union files a grievance. Their grievance goes to arbitration. And, and while the arbitration is pending, the union also files a lawsuit seeking a temporary restraining order, a preliminary injunction, a declaratory judgment, and injunctive relief pending the arbitration of the grievance. The court granted the temporary restraining order. I'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, the city refuses to comply with the court order and eventually gets fined $103,000 by the court in sanctions for contempt. Meanwhile, the arbitration hearing is chugging along, and the arbitrator uh, issues a decision on March 12, 2017. Uh, and what that means is the arbitrator's decision is rendered 11 months after the change in staffing. The arbitrator found that the city, in fact, breached the collective bargaining agreement by reducing uh, staffing from 10 to 8 firefighters and ordered the city, quote, to make all affected firefighters whole in back pay and lost benefits who would have been entitled to overtime on the call-out list under the terms of the contract and on any and all dates after April 12, 2016. Uh, Local 500 goes back to court, files a new lawsuit seeking to confirm and enforce the arbitrator's award. Uh, a trial court ends up siding with the union 
uh, saying that pursuant to the arbitration award, the total back pay owed local 500, 500's members was $1,188,219.36. And the court also concluded that by this point, the city had run up sanctions and fees totaling $443,000. Combining the two, the court granted judgment in favor of the union for a total of $1.6 million and change. Uh, the city appeals to the Ohio Court of Appeals, uh, contending that the arbitration award uh, was simply too broad that the arbitration award couldn't look forward to the future and at the future from the date the staffing change was made, couldn't look forward to the future uh, and, quote, cannot conceivably portend future possible grievances, let alone be held to have governed them. And the court said, too bad. Arbitrator had jurisdiction over this dispute, uh, and it is clear under the submission clause in arbitration that the arbitrator had the authority to adjudicate uh, violations from the date of the change in the staffing uh, provision. And the court ends up saying that uh, the award of damages uh, was consistent with the trial court's award of damages was consistent with the arbitration opinion. And the final line in the opinion says, quote, the trial court heard testimony that through 2018, 2019, 2020, the city had not restored staffing to 10 firefighters per shift for every shift as required by the arbitration award and that certain firefighters were owed a total aggregated amount of the $1.18 million in back pay, plus those $400,000 in sanctions. Uh, wow, that's a huge amount for a city the size of East Cleveland, which is really just a smallish suburb of Cleveland. Um, but it is an award, I think, that's clearly contemplated by the collective bargaining agreement. If there's a staffing clause in the contract, employers would do well to abide by the terms of that clause. If they find that clause unfair, the place to try to change that is going to be at the bargaining table. It's not going to be through a unilateral change in the middle of the contract or else an employer is going to face an award like this. While we're on back pay, I want to briefly talk about a North Carolina case uh, involving uh, back pay that kind of emphasizes how back pay gets calculated when an employee has been improperly disciplined. Now, North Carolina does not have a statewide collective bargaining law governing police, fire, or corrections. But what it does have is a series of state statutes that govern uh, state employees. And one of those statutes has a provision that requires just cause for discipline. And so North Carolina is kind of this unusual state. I don't know of another one in the country where you see court opinions interpreting what just cause for discipline means 
without an underlying collective bargaining agreement that has a just cause provision. Uh, it's a non-union state. Okay, so what goes on in this case? Uh, this involves the North Carolina Department of Public Safety, uh, which terminated a corrections officer by the name of Christopher Stockley. Stockley challenged his termination through North Carolina's administrative hearing system. This is where disputes about just cause start. They end up in the court system, but this is where they start, is in the Office of Administrative Hearings. An ALJ, an administrative law judge, enters a final decision reinstating Stockley and awarding him back pay, and the back pay awarded by the ALJ not only included Stockley's salary for his regular working days, but also back pay for two days of mandatory overtime that Stockley testified he was required to work because of staffing shortages at his correctional institution. Uh, that's nothing new for those of you in corrections. Uh, it's all over the country right now. There, we have this incredible staffing shortage of corrections officers, and we have corrections officers subject to mandatory overtime probably in the vast majority of states in the country. In some places, this has uh, caused employers to sweeten uh, overtime benefits. Uh, we, in our law firm, represent uh, one uh, correctional association where employees now receive double time for voluntary overtime uh, simply because of the staffing shortages that the business of corrections is facing. Okay, back to the case. The department uh, challenges the ALJ's decision saying, hey, he only had authority to award back pay based on regular salary and overtime shouldn't be included in the calculation of an employee's regular salary. And the, North, the case ends up with the North Carolina Court of Appeals. Uh, and the court says, yeah, the ALJ did have discretion to include uh, overtime in the back pay calculation. The court says, quote, when an ALJ determines that a state agency lacks just cause to terminate an employee, the ALJ can provide several forms of relief to the employee, including payment for any loss of salary resulting from the improper termination. The term salary is undefined. Uh, therefore, the court says, we will give it its normal meaning in, the, in English when the court quotes from the Merriam-Webster's Collegiate Dictionary, 11th edition, 2003, why is a court quoting from a 2003 dictionary, I wonder? At, at any rate, uh, and the court says, at the hearing, Stockley testified that he worked 14 days each month at his regular pay scale and also worked overtime that was mandatory. The department says, well, you know, Stockley may have said that, but the only evidence in the record is Stockley's only self-serving testimony. And the court answers, and I think very appropriately, quote, but self-serving or not, Stockley's testimony is unrebutted sworn testimony. If the department believes Stockley's testimony about his mandatory overtime was incorrect, it could have presented its own counter evidence. The department 
did not do so. Award of overtime upheld. And this is actually pretty standard law on the issue of calculation of back pay. If the amount of overtime is predictable for the employee, so if there is, like in Stockley's case, mandatory overtime, or if the employee has established a healthy enough pattern of working voluntary overtime, you can expect to see a court or an arbitrator include back pay in, uh, include overtime in the back pay calculations. Uh, there's some debate about that, but that is clearly the majority rule. Now for the latest from the Chicago world of mandatory vaccinations. This is a police case and it comes to us from the Illinois Court of Appeals. Uh, and it involves Lodge 7, the Fraternal Order of Police, which in Chicago uh, represents sworn officers under the rank of sergeant. There are separate unions in Chicago for police sergeants and police lieutenants. Uh, and this goes back to August of 2021, when the city announced its intention uh, to, uh, to impose a policy that would require that all employees report their vaccination status to the city uh, within a one-month period, excuse me, a two-month period of time by October 15th of 2021. And eventually, uh, that morphed into a mandatory vaccination requirement for employees who did not have a religious or medical exemption. Now, the city and the FOP and, in fact, the, uh, the union that represents both sergeants and lieutenants in separate bargaining units, the Policemen's Benevolent and Protective Association of Illinois, they all got together and they went to arbitration before a single arbitrator, arbitrator George Rumel, who's one of the more experienced and uh, really, I think, respected, at least among other arbitrators, arbitrators in the country. And the arbitrator ruled that under the collective bargaining agreement, the city had the management right uh, to impose the mandatory vaccination requirement. And he upheld the city's uh, policy, which required that employees who had not complied with the vaccine mandate be placed in a no-pay status. The unions challenged the arbitrator's decision in court, uh, and in November of 2022, the Illinois Court of Appeals upheld the arbitrator's opinion. I'm going to read you about three, four sentences from the court's opinion, and that's pretty much all you need to know about this case. Uh, here's why the court ended up upholding the arbitrator's decision. At bottom, the unions are really arguing that the arbitrator misinterpreted the collective bargaining agreements because the Illinois Labor Board has ruled differently where unions have filed unfair labor practice charges before the board in similar disputes. But that is not a proper argument for an appeal from an arbitration award. Interpretation of a collective bargaining agreement is a question for the arbitrator. It is the arbitrator's construction which was bargained for, and so far as the arbitrator's decision concerns construction of the contract, 
the courts have no business overruling him because their interpretation of the contract is different from his. And the court says in this case, uh, the arbitrator was within his discretion in interpreting the contract uh, to provide that the city had the management right to have a mandatory vaccination program and upheld the arbitrator's opinion. So that's uh, the latest stop in the ongoing saga of the Chicago vaccination requirement. There's other litigation uh, that remains pending. Uh, there's bargaining over the issue that seems to intermittently go on. So stay tuned. Next up, a Facebook case that shows the reality of working in a completely non-union environment. This case involves Shana Kirkland. Uh, Shana Kirkland was a patrol officer with the city of Maryville in Tennessee. Uh, while uh, having that job, Kirkland would use her personal Facebook account to criticize the county sheriffs. Um, she works for the city of Maryville, so she's criticizing the elected sheriff in of the county in which the city uh, lies. Kirkland's supervisors got tired of that and ordered her to stop. They also reprimanded her for other conduct issues. But matters finally came to a head a couple of years ago with a Facebook post by Kirkland claiming the sheriff had excluded her from a training event because, one, she was female, and two, opposed his reelection. At that point, the city fires Kirkland. Kirkland, because she's in a non-union environment, can't file a grievance, there's no civil service. Her only recourse is through the court system, alleging that one of her First Amendment rights were violated. And that's what she does. She files a complaint in federal court, alleging retaliation in violation of the First Amendment, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, and the Tennessee Human Rights Act, uh, which is basically Tennessee's equivalent of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. Uh, the trial court rules in the city's favor, and the case bounces up to the federal Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, and the court upholds the ruling in the city's favor. Uh, why? Uh, the court says there's a lot of evidence here that Kirkland's Facebook post undermined the relationship between the sheriff's office and the city police department. Uh, and the court details the history. The court says you got to look at the context of how this came up. Kirkland had a 10-year history of conflict with the sheriff's office, going back to when she was fired by the sheriff's office as a corrections officer. Uh, while she was on the PD, she made a series of Facebook posts that asserted what the court calls sharply personal criticisms of the sheriff and his supporters. What is more, the court says, quote, following uh, Kirkland's refusal to shake an instructor's hand at a sheriff's office training event and her poor performance in the simulation that was at the heart of the event, uh, the sheriff personally wrote to the police chief 
asking to bar Kirkland from future training events. And the court ends up saying it's reasonable under these circumstances for the city to predict that Kirkland's final Facebook post, maybe not her final one, but her final one as a city employee, uh, the latest, quote, escalation in a persistent dispute between her and the sheriff's office, end of quote, would further disrupt the department's working relationship with the sheriff's office. And the court says preserving that relationship is a weighty interest in the city's favor, especially when those officers may have to rely on one another in life-threatening circumstances. Is this a termination case if it's an arbitration? Maybe she did refuse a direct order to stop posting, but also maybe, you know, since she's worked for a number of years uh, for the city PD, uh, maybe an arbitrator puts her back to work on a last chance basis. But we'll never know because there was no ability to appeal this through the collective bargaining or civil service process. Instead, all she's got is the First Amendment. And as we have seen in a series of cases, public safety employees don't fare very well in free speech First Amendment lawsuits challenging discipline uh, for off-duty Facebook posts that have any relationship with their work. The last case I want to talk about this month, and I'm going to spend a little bit of time on it because I think it's very important, is a case out of California involving a union's waiver of its right to bargain over pension changes. Uh, let me take a step back to give you the setting for this sort of dispute. In California, like every state that I know of that has a statewide collective bargaining law, an employer has to negotiate over changes in past practice that involve mandatory subjects of bargaining, usually wages, hours, or working conditions, unless the union has somehow waived the right to bargain over the changes. Now, there's two types of waiver, two types of ways a union can waive the right to bargain over changes in past practice. One is what's called a waiver by contract. That's where something in the underlying collective bargaining agreement or memorandum of understanding, that's where something in that document, I'll call those contracts, uh, gives the employer the ability to make the change in past practice. Courts are pretty strict about what an employer has to show to establish a waiver by contract. Uh, courts and labor boards will apply the phrase that the waiver has to be clear and unmistakable. And also that an employer has to show that the union knew that it was waiving its right to bargain. Um, 
But there are clauses in collective bargaining agreements that do give employer a great deal of latitude over making changes in such things as work shifts or assignments or subcontracting, wherever it might be, where you do actually see a waiver by contract. It's just simply rather difficult for an employer to meet the high bar of showing Uh, clear and unmistakable waivers. So that's the first type of waiver, the first type of way a union can waive its right to bargain over changes in past practice. The second way that a union can waive the right to bargain over changes in past practice uh, is through inaction. And waiver by inaction is a completely different beast. Waiver by inaction occurs when the union knows of the employer's intent to make a change in past practice and doesn't assert its bargaining rights, where it simply sits on its hands. And the case I want to talk about from California, this is from the Public Employment Relations Board in California, which I think of as probably the best public employment relations board in the country in terms of writing opinions that clearly explain the law. Uh, This is from California's PERB. This case deals with waiver by inaction. So what's going on? This involves the union that represents deputy sheriffs in Orange County, California. It's known as the Association of Orange County Deputy Sheriffs. I'll just call it the association here. Retirement benefits in Orange County are provided by a homegrown retirement system. It's known as the Orange County Employees Retirement System. I'll call it the retirement system. And the county, of course, makes pension contributions to the retirement system, collects employee contributions, and then sends all of those funds over to the retirement system um, to pay for pension benefits. Under the system, a retiree's pension benefit is calculated by using a formula based upon the phrasing of the underlying ordinance here is compensation earnable. Uh, Prior to 2021, uh, July 15th, 2021, the retirement system considered on-call pay and canine handler pay to be part of compensation earnable for what were called legacy members or grandfathered members. These were employees who became members of the retirement system uh, prior to January 1, 2013, when a California statewide pension reform law passed. So prior to July 15th, 2021, uh, the county is making pension contributions, employees are making pension contributions on on on-call pay and canine handler pay for these grandfathered employees, the ones who were around prior to January 1, 2013. Then the California Supreme Court issues an opinion that interprets that pension reform law and the county and the retirement system decide we're going to reassess our pension retirement system. And as a result, on September 11th, 2020, the county stops collecting pension contributions associated with 
on-call and standby pay and canine handler pay, uh, and the retirement system stops counting those contributions in the calculation of the retirement benefits for employees. The association demands to bargain over this change. And are retirement benefits a mandatory subject to bargaining? Uh, in California, they, they certainly are. It varies a little bit from state to state, but in California, they are. Uh, so the association files an unfair labor practice complaint with PERB saying, hey, you need to bargain over that change in past practice with us. And uh, the county responds saying, oh, you waived your right to bargain over the change in retirement benefits. You knew what we were going to do, and you didn't assert your bargaining rights in a timely fashion. And California's PERB agrees with the county. Uh, the court, or excuse me, the court, the board starts off by describing kind of broad waiver principles. Uh, and the board says, and I'm quoting here, although formal notice of a proposed change delivered to a union official is appropriate, it need not be formal to be effective. When a union official with authority to act has actual notice of the intended change, together with adequate time to decide whether to demand negotiation, the union will be deemed to have received adequate notice. And in this case, Perb says, the association had notice. How did it have notice? It had notice in two ways, says, says Perb. And it's the first of these ways uh, that I think is really the important teaching point of this case. The first of these ways is the association got the agenda for the retirement system meeting where this issue was going to be discussed and got that agenda between three and four weeks prior to the September 11th meeting. And that agenda highlighted uh, a discussion of, quote, the recent California Supreme Court decision, uh, end quote. And there was a note from the executive director of the retirement system that the fiduciary council, the retirement system's lawyer, would address the import of the Supreme Court's decision for the retirement system and its members. So. Um, back to PERB's decision, uh, PERB says this message was delivered to a proper official of the association and was presented in a manner that was reasonably calculated to draw attention to any item reflecting a proposed change in a mandatory subject of bargaining. And I'm quoting now. While a board agenda does not always constitute notice, here there was sufficient notice given the highlighting of the particular agenda item, the approximate time the agenda item would be heard, and the discussion that would occur at the meeting about the changes to be made, end quote. And because the union didn't act in a timely fashion between when it got that notice and 
a retirement systems board meeting three to four weeks later, it waived its right to insist on bargaining. All right, so before I go on with the rest of this case, let's get to the teaching point. First of all, for employers, if you're gonna make a change in a mandatory subject to bargaining, many states, California certainly included among them, requires that you give notice to the union of the intent to make the change. If you don't give that notice, the union will be forgiven from a, the consequences of a tardy demand to bargain. In this case, of course, notice was given. Second uh, teaching point that comes out of this portion of PERB's decision is that unions, when you get those agendas, those agendas from city council meetings or county board meetings or what retirement board meetings, whatever they might be, read them. And if there is something on the agenda that conceivably could concern a mandatory subject of bargaining, act upon that right away. Assert your right to bargain at a minimum ask for more information about whatever that agenda item might be. And the association did not do so in this case. Okay, back to the second half of PERB's opinion. Uh, so PERB by this point has already decided that the agenda was enough notice and the union, the association did not timely demand a bargain, uh, but PERB's not done with the association. Uh, and here's what PERB holds. Quote, even if the board agenda coupled with the county's email did not constitute actual notice, association officials received sufficient notice of the change at the August 17th retirement system board meeting. That's the one, a board meeting three weeks before the final decision is made. Back to PERB's opinion. Quote, the association's uh, executive director, president, a board member, and attorney all attended the retirement system board meeting and heard the executive director of the retirement system say that the retirement system would cease accepting on-call and canine handler specialty pay contributions effective September 11th. The executive director even stated his belief that this change would have negotiable effects. End of quote. Herb says, under both of these circumstances, the agenda item and what was said at the board meeting, we think the association had actual knowledge that contributions were going to stop and the association's failure to demand bargaining waived its right to negotiate over the change in past practice. So lots of, I think, important lessons, both for employers and for unions uh, in this case. And I think it's a pretty clear application of principles that would apply across the country. So with that, that's the end of our first podcast for 2023. As I said, I'll continue doing these podcasts for whatever the foreseeable future is, whatever that phrase is. Hope to see you in Las Vegas for 
our uh, public safety union leadership conference. It, that's always a, a very, very fun conference for us where we bring union leaders from around the country and we talk about items as exciting as constitutions and bylaws, finances, and I'm kidding about the constitution and bylaws, although that can be a pretty exciting issue. Uh, finances, union communications, political activity, representing members in disciplinary uh, proceedings, and the like. So with that, welcome to 2023. This is Will Aitchison signing off. <music>